Thank you, Barrett. And I want to begin today with a question for you. What difference does a relationship with Jesus Christ make when you're at work or at school or at home? It's simpler to think about Jesus when we're at church, when we're with other Christians, maybe studying the Bible or when we're reading the Bible ourselves. But are we aware of Jesus when we ride the bus, go to class, go to a meeting at work, wash the dishes? Sometimes we can live like our life has compartments. There's the work-school piece. There's the family relationship piece. There's the household chore section and homework piece. There's the relationship part. There's looking after our kids part. There's leisure time and social outings. And then there's the spiritual part, the church part, the God part. And that may be the only compartment of our lives where we actually think about Christ. And sometimes we act like very different people depending on the compartment we're in at that particular time. I remember a friend who had an employer who went to the same church and they had cordial interaction on Sundays and on Mondays the employer would scream at my friend and belittle them. And I realized that work and church are different contexts and require different skills, but it was like a switch flipped in the employer. And they moved from church mode and nice mode to work mode and harsh, cruel mode. And I realized different contexts. Yet, should this result in a drastic change in our character, our behavior? Do we get to turn off Jesus when we're at work or at school or at home and just how, act however we want? And then we get to church and put on our best behavior. Any serious reader of the New Testament will realize this is not the case at all. This is not the way of Christ. Jesus did not come to be Lord over our Sunday mornings and then fade into the background for the rest of the week. To receive Christ Jesus as Lord means he's Lord over every area of our lives all the time. And we've seen this in the Colossians study, especially in chapter 3, where Paul has addressed very personal areas of lifestyle and relationships. We've seen the commands to wives and to husbands. And last week, we looked at the relationship between children and parents. And today, we look at another one of these everyday relationships between workers and managers, employees and employers. And I think we can extend this beyond jobs to teachers and students and work in our households. Paul issues commands towards workers and those in charge about how to work and manage in light of a relationship with Christ. But there is an elephant in the room in this passage because the primary work relationship at that time was between slaves and masters. 
which creates another issue for us. We can apply these principles to our modern-day situation, but how could Paul just command slaves to obey their masters? Why wouldn't he condemn slavery as a corrupt and evil institution that needed to be dismantled? Why do we see biblical characters having slaves? And the Bible doesn't seem to directly address this, so we need to deal with that. And then we're going to walk through these basic principles of how our relationship with Christ can affect our work, with our managers, or as employees, or our work at home. And then we will come to the Lord for his grace and strength to actually live this out. So I pray that today you're going to see God's heart, God's compassion, God's attention for everyone in every situation of their lives, along with his justice, and that in some way he'll encourage you with this passage today. So it's Colossians 3, verses 22 to chapter 4, verse 1. It's on page 836 in the Bibles that we have for you there. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, which is slightly different than the New American Standard that you have. But here are Paul's commands for this passage. So Colossians 3, verse 22. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So that's the passage, but let's get to the first question. Why doesn't Paul instruct masters to release their slaves? Why doesn't the Bible directly condemn slavery? First, we need to identify what we think and what we mean by the word slavery. And when you hear that word, what comes to mind? For many of us, it likely involves an image of slavery in the American South and the Caribbean during the horrific slave trade of the 17th to the 19th century. And the accounts and records that we have of that time paint this terrible picture where people were basically kidnapped in Africa. They were brought to the west coast of Africa, sold to slave ships, who then transported them across the Atlantic to the Americas or up to Europe, and there they would be sold again and treated as property. And there were some similarities between the slave trade that we might be more familiar with and the time of Paul in the first century. He lived when the Romans ruled the empire and their economy basically depended on slave labor. The Romans did a lot of invading, a lot of fighting. They would capture people from villages, they would have prisoners of war, and they would take these people back to Rome or to one of the cities in the empire and sell them as slaves for the benefit of the emperor. 
Now, within this slave economy, there were different types of slavery. There was the mine slave who would go work in the mines and had a very short lifespan. There was the galley slave. If you know the Ben-Hur story, that's the image of the galley slave being below decks, pulling oars to keep the Roman galley going, especially in times of battle, very low and short life expectancy. And then there was the household slave or bond servant. And these were people who lived with the family. They slept in the house. They would have families of their own. They were responsible for whatever duties the father or master of the house required. And it is the house slaves or bond servants that Paul addresses here. But still, the question remains, why doesn't he just say, you should, masters, release your slaves, and slaves, you should rise up and gain your freedom? Well, those actions or those statements or questions would assume that doing those things would make life better for the slaves, and this was not necessarily the case. Remember, Paul didn't live in a democracy. He lived in a dictatorship. The Romans did not tolerate protest. The Romans brutally suppressed any slave rebellion. Slaves had no legal rights or recourse. They could not go to court to claim mistreatment. And if a master just released his slaves without proper ID, walking down the street, someone else could enslave them, whether it be a Roman soldier or a crueler master than the one that they had. Old Testament scholar Michael Heiser says, why doesn't Paul advocate rebellion or protesting en masse like a bunch of Christian slaves going down to the Roman Senate and, and appealing for their freedom? Why? Because Paul didn't want everyone dead. Because that's what the Romans would do. They would either be killed or taken away from their masters and sent to worse masters. They are the most vulnerable people in the entire culture. They don't have any rights. It's not a democracy. And a lot of people living under Roman authority did not have Roman citizenship. And if a bunch of Christians went to protest slavery, they would just all be killed. And so it's, it's like almost North Korea today. That, that's how you could think about the Roman Empire. We have these, these pictures that... You know, the Romans were kind of in the background and, and let people live however they wanted to live. But that's not the picture that we have of the Roman Empire. People were under military occupation. And slaves were the most vulnerable. So Heiser says, we have to realize Paul understands his own context better than we do. So we can't go around judging Paul for not advocating a slave rebellion. If he did, that might be the end of Christianity at that time. And note, Paul does not support slavery. We can't interpret his commands about slavery to indicate, well, he supports it. No. He's giving commands in light of the reality of slavery. Paul doesn't want to make them more vulnerable. 
So why doesn't Paul instruct masters to release their slaves? Because freeing slaves in that context would likely put them at greater risk. On top of that, Paul actually does speak against enslaving. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul is talking about lawless and disobedient people in the eyes of God. And in verse 10, he actually mentions enslavers. People who kidnap others in order to sell them into slavery. That is a person who is being disobedient to God. And that is very risky to put in a first century letter. You could be accused of rebellion because the Romans were enslavers. And remember, if you were a rebel in Rome, the Romans would just kill you. If you were even accused of being a rebel, they would uh, kill you. See Jesus for an example. So Paul is speaking in light of this reality. He's not endorsing this reality at all. He's, he's dealing with people who have to live in this reality. And he gives instructions on how they can live as Christians in light of their circumstances. So let's look at the Colossians passage. And Paul spends four verses talking to slaves or bond servants, likely indicating that there were many bond servants who came to the church, who received the message of the gospel because it was a message of hope. And no one else gave them hope. So he spends four verses talking to them. And here we're going to try to translate this into our times. So the first question is, how can an employee honor Christ in their relationship with their manager or employer. And verse 22 says, Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. So employees need to work for their managers with sincerity of heart as if working for the Lord. So there's four key pieces to this verse. First, Paul commands slaves to obey their earthly masters. And for you and I today in the 21st century, that rubs us the wrong way. Obeying my manager. We don't use the word obedience hardly at all today let alone in the workplace. However, in the first century context, Paul wanted the best for Christian slaves, and one way to increase the likelihood of their survival and well-being was obedience to their earthly matters, masters, especially in times of slave rebellions. Of course, the slave had to evaluate, is this command going to go against the command of God? But generally... They were to obey their masters in everything because this would reflect well on them and on their Lord. And second, notice this obedience must happen even when the master is away. Employees must not work hard only when the master is around. Or the, the text says, not by way of eye service as people Pleasers, And so the image there is, I'm only going to work when my master's around. I'm only going to work hard when they're here. But when they're not here, I'm going to slack off. 
I'm going to cut corners. And he's saying, no, don't do that. This will come back to the manager eventually. This is not sincerity of heart. Notice he says that, sincerity of heart. Well, what does it mean to be sincere? It means that what you say you will do, you will actually do. That's being sincere. So the manager comes along, the manager gives a command, you say, yes, I will do that, and you do that even if the manager's not around. And then the fourth piece of the verse is fearing the Lord. Fearing the Lord. And this is crucial because what if we have a manager who is difficult or cruel or unfair? It's hard to have a sincere motivation for such a person. But if a worker sees the Lord as their master, then they gain strength to carry this out. Fearing the Lord. And then Paul expands on this in verse 23. He says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. So sincerity of heart, work heartily with a full heart and replace your manager in your mind with Christ. And say, I'm going to work and do my job. I'm going to do my schoolwork. I'm going to do my chores around home. I'm going to do what the teacher says. But I'm going to do it as if the Lord is my manager. And the Lord is the perfect manager. He never gets anything wrong. He never does things wrong or, or makes mistakes like your earthly managers will. But I'm going to work to honor the Lord. To work heartily. And, and, and notice in verse 24, a statement that may not mean much to us, but would mean everything to a slave. Verse 24, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Well, slaves will have no earthly inheritance. They are the inheritance that's passed on. And all of a sudden, Paul and the Lord are talking about them receiving an inheritance. And so their work is noticed by the Lord, honored by the Lord, not meaning that their works earn their salvation. Instead, it points to the Lord's awareness of their labors for his glory. And somehow that would be rewarded or noted in eternity. So, so think about how this might apply today. Say if you are an employee or a worker, how would it impact your manager, do you think, if you did exactly what they asked you to do without complaining, without arguing, without excusing yourself, without immediately resisting, claiming, no, you can't do that. You just received it. You said, yes, I will do that. And you follow through on it, and you complete it without them watching. Do you think that would have an impact on your manager? And decent managers would likely recognize this and appreciate it. But more than that, such an attitude pleases the Lord. And even if you don't have a manager and you do work at home, you can still do your work to the glory of God. 
you can still work heartily as for the Lord because such work is turned into an act of worship. And you know the difference between someone who works heartily and someone who offers a half-hearted effort. There's a huge difference. But whatever we do, we can work heartily for the Lord. And so if you're a, if you're a, a parent at home with young kids, and it, there, there's a lot of work involved in that. But your work is not just some mundane thing that you just have to get through. You can offer it up to the Lord as a sacrifice. You do the best that you can with the resources that you have. You offer it up to him. It becomes a holy act of worship. Same thing with doing chores around the house or other things going on in our lives. Whether you are a senior and you pray at home for others, that's a, that's a glorious act of worship that you can offer up to the Lord. Notice finally for the worker in verse 25, there's a warning and a comfort. If someone just wants to ignore this command, Paul warns them. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there's no partiality. Which basically means slack work and ignoring our supervisor's reasonable expectations is wrong in the eyes of the Lord. And we need to take this to heart. But we also can take to heart that even if we're working hard and someone over here is cutting corners, that will be called to account one day. We don't have to stress about all of that. Judgment Day calls everything to account. Judgment Day is not just about salvation. It's about our acts and our actions. God sees everything. He's going to reward and call to account. And so as we think about this in, in your work, maybe your work as an employee, your, your, your work maybe as even as a, a, a businessman or a self-employed person, uh, is there any lack of hearty work in your work ethic? And, and if there is, we can fuel our desire for hearty work, for God-glorifying work by recognizing first that it is the Lord whom we serve and the Lord who will empower us. And in my life, I have to apply this work heartily command whenever I'm alone in the office and I have a little sticky near my desk that says simply this, God sees everything all the time and God is at work for my good. So there's kind of a warning there and an encouragement if I'm tempted to slack off. And this also means that we don't get to check out of our Christian life when we leave church, when we go to work, when we're driving, when we're at home. And it doesn't mean we're going to be on our best behavior all the time. Oh, we're going to be our church behavior all the time. We are real with God. We share our struggles, but we don't check out. We don't get a pass to act like a jerk at work or at school or when we're driving or when we're at home. For our relationship with Christ should permeate every aspect of our lives. Then Paul speaks to masters in chapter 4, verse 1. So let's translate that to managers or employers. How can managers and employers honor Christ in their relationship with their employees? And this is chapter 4, verse 1, which says simply, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly 
knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So this verse, again, speaks to the stronger in defense of the weaker. And we've seen that already in this passage where the, uh, Paul speaks to the husband who was in the stronger position to love their wives and do not be harsh with them. He speaks to parents who are the stronger in the relationship with the children. And he says, parents, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. And here he speaks to the stronger, the person in the more powerful position, masters. They must treat their bondservants with justice and fairness, which was not common practice in Rome. You had absolute authority over the life or death of your slaves. Whether or not it was fair was not much of a consideration. But here... They are called to be fair and just because there's a master over them. A Christian master or manager recognizes that they have an ultimate manager or master. So managers and employers needed to treat their employees justly and fairly since they also have a master in heaven. That's the thrust of the verse as I try to translate it into our modern day. A manager's Christian faith should impact how they do their work. It should affect our decisions. We should have compassionate concern for employees along with accountability. And though these commands are basically pretty easy to understand, they're very difficult to live out, especially when you're going against the flow of the culture. Because what is the common standard when at workplaces people talk about their managers behind their backs. It's usually to talk about how stupid they are, how wrong they are, how, how badly they... And, and, and everyone gets together and badmouths the manager. And, and so we have to struggle against getting sucked into that or badmouth the employee. We have to struggle against that by the power of Christ to fulfill this calling. And we also have to remember that work is not a curse. Work was in the Garden of Eden before the fall, and it was a beautiful thing. It got cursed because of the fall, but it's still part of God's good purposes for us. And when done to God's glory, work can be transformed into something that is purposeful and glorious. And I want you to hear today, if you don't hear anything else, that your work matters to God. Whatever it is, if you are doing complicated surgery or washing dishes, your work matters to God. If you are handling millions of dollars or doing laundry, your work matters to God. If you fix things up at home, that work matters to God. If you are studying for some courses, that work matters to God. Whatever you are doing matters to God. He cares about it. He sees it. And we have an opportunity to offer it up to him as an act and sacrifice of worship. Such a God-immersed life is possible when we invite Jesus into the deepest parts of our soul. And in our God compartment of life, when we're connected to God and we're 
reading our Bible and praying, the more that we fill up with him, the more we'll spill out of him when we're squeezed by life, by work, by school. And instead of bad-mouthing our manager or our employees or the teacher, we offer up what we're doing to his glory, by his strength. Now, maybe some of you are here today, you don't know Christ at all, and this idea of giving your life over to Christ and then living from Christ so you have the power to live this out sounds almost cultish. So I want to reassure you today, Jesus is not a cult leader who tries to control, manipulate, and use people. He invites, he loves us in pure and wholesome ways. He wants the best for us. He was willing to give himself up for us. So when we come to him, we begin the journey of having our lives transformed from the inside out. And as he changes our hearts, we begin to change. And our attitude towards work changes. Towards our managers. Towards whoever is in authority over us. As he shows us the way and empowers us to live as he would. And so, today, I want to invite you to come before the Lord with whatever work is before you right now. You might be a, a mom at home with young kids. Well, that's work. You might be a senior with, with thoughts of prayer and, and, and grandparenting. That's work. You, you might have a job, obviously. That's work. You might be a manager. That's work. Come before him, and let's, let's bow our heads and come quietly before the Lord. And I want to invite you first to offer up your work to the Lord. And maybe you could even pray, Lord, I offer up my work to you. A and then... If there's anything that the Lord has spoken to us about that we need to confess, we confess it now. Whether it be slacking off, whether it be bad-mouthing, whether it be half-hearted work, whatever it is, if there's anything, just offer that up to the Lord. And then if there's something hard at work or at home that involves your work, ask for wisdom from the Lord now on, on what do I do in this? Please grant me wisdom, Lord. And then you can maybe thank the Lord that he has given you work, that it is a gift ultimately, and that he will empower you to do it his way if you'll turn to him. So thank the Lord for the work that you have.
And Lord, we praise you for your work in creation, in salvation, in changing our lives. We confess when we have slacked off, when we only work hard if the manager walks by, when we gossip or badmouth another, or when we think our work is worthless. Thank you for work and for purpose and for opportunity and for schooling. And empower us to go against the flow, to do our work with integrity and joy and power, serving you as our ultimate Lord and Master. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.